This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF form. The Greatness of the Great Commission, Christian Enterprise in a Fallen World, written by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr., published in 1990 by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, narrated by Joseph Spurgeon. Chapter 6, The Commitment to Sovereignty, Baptizing Them in the Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19b. The fourth feature of the covenant is the requirement of an oath, often taken in conjunction with some ceremonial action. In this oath-taking ceremony, the covenant is publicly set forth as a solemn obligation under the covenantal sovereign and the historical administration of his authority. It obliges the covenant recipient to live according to the sovereign's stipulations. Divine covenants, because of the very nature of the sovereign, involve worship. In the Great Commission we discover both worship and the ordaining of the oath ceremony. All that has been established heretofore regarding the obligation to subdue all culture for Christ must never be severed from its spiritual foundations in the adoration and worship of God. We must always press the spirituality principle of the kingdom work of the church by noting its redemptive starting point and worship emphasis. As Gerhardus Voss puts it, Jesus' doctrine of the kingdom is both inward and outward, coming first in the heart of man and afterwards in the external world, upholds the primacy of the spiritual and ethical over the physical. The invisible world of the inner religious life, the righteousness of the disposition, the sonship of God are in it made supreme. The essence of the kingdom, the ultimate realities to which everything else is subordinate. The Great Commission is not just a tool of cultural transformation, nor is it initially such. The cultural effects of the Great Commission flow from the redemptive power that is inherent in Christ's kingdom. In the oath-worshipped aspect of the commission, we have Christ exhibited in his priestly office. He is our great high priest, who secures our redemption, which is symbolized and sealed to us in baptism. In the very context of the giving of the Great Commission, we see the response of the delighted disciples to the presence of the risen Christ. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, Matthew 28, 17a. Upon this notice, the Great Commission is given, Matthew 28, 18-20. The going and the discipling of the Great Commission are a going for, and a discipling under the authority of one, who is infinitely worthy of our worship. These disciples saw Christ and worshipped him. As these disciples were immediately instructed to disciple all nations, they obviously were instruct all nations in the worship of Christ. Without a doubt, the starting point of Christ's gracious influence among men is the personal salvation wrought by the sovereign grace of Almighty God. Evangelicals agree on this point, and I certainly confirm this truth in this book. Because of the inherent depravity of man, man cannot know the things of God, nor can he save himself or even prepare himself for salvation. In addition, neither can he function properly in God's world. This is where the Great Commission comes in. It harnesses the power of God to effect a radical change in the heart and mind of man. Based on the plan of God, founded upon the work of Christ, effected by the operation of the Holy Spirit, the gospel brings eternal salvation to sinners otherwise hopelessly lost. And this points to the importance of baptism for the commission. Christ ordained baptism as a sign and seal of his gracious covenant. Baptism primarily and fundamentally signifies his union with Christ, a union that entails faith in Christ and cleansing from sin. The very formula of baptism given in the Great Commission itself points to the truth of union with Christ, with the fuller notion of that union involving the triune God, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19b. 
but the promotion of personal, individual, spiritual salvation, wherein the convert is cleansed from his sin and united with Christ, is not the end-all of the Great Commission. Here we rephrase the Gaines-Dobbins interchange mentioned earlier, to the question, Is not conversion the end of the Great Commission? And we reply, Yes, but which end? Spiritual union with Christ is signified in ceremonial baptism, and this union is essential to the ultimate Christian cultural renewal resultant from the effects of great numbers of conversions. And the formula of baptism emphasizes that union in an important manner. Christ commands his church to baptize converts in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28:19b. Now what is the significance of baptizing in the name of the triune God? The Greek preposition eis, or in, is here used in such a way as to express the notion of spear. That is, this baptism is a sign and seal of the newly won disciples being in the spear of, or coming under the lordship of, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, as its result is related elsewhere, the convert is in Christ. At the moment of salvation, then, the redeemed sinner is removed from the realm of Satan, and his dominion rule to the realm of the triune God and his dominion rule. Acts 26.18 Interestingly, in the book of Acts, where we have the historical record of the early Christians' missionary labor, Christ is called Lord at least 26 times, and probably as many as 92 times. He is called the Savior, but twice. The scripture clearly emphasizes his lordship in salvation and life. And of course, the whole conception of discipleship, as conceived in the Great Commission, implies a master-student relationship between the Lord and the convert. The authority of the triune God is also involved in baptism, by the expression indicating the disciple is baptized in his name. It is true that ancient Jews often used the name as a substitute for saying the holy name of Jehovah, in fear of accidentally breaching the third commandment. Nevertheless, such is not the case in Matthew 28:19. Rather, the name, coupled with the baptismal action here, indicates ownership. It is not merely a Hebraism or a circumlocution for the person of God. There is good evidence that the terminology employed here was used both inside and outside of Christian circles in a way helpful to the understanding of its usage in Matthew 28. Greek scholars have found that the use of name, onoma, here is a common one in the Septuagint and the papyri for power or authority. For instance, pagan soldiers swore into the name or possession of the god Zeus upon their entry into military service. And in financial matters, money was paid into the name or account or possession of someone. Accordingly, in the present passage, the baptized may be said to be translated into the possession of the Father, Jesus Christ, and His Holy Spirit. All of this is most significant. At conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ, men bow to a new Lord and Master and receive the sign and seal of His kingdom. Consequently, in this baptismal act of worship, there is a public, sacramental declaration of the exchange from one realm of authority, Satan's, to another, God's. This supplements the idea of Christian cultural renewal, for the baptized is now obligated to live all of life in terms of the covenantal obligations of the new master, as opposed to the old. Throughout this book, I have been demonstrating that the Great Commission is a covenant obligation. Consequently, it requires a covenant oath of commitment to the terms of the covenant. Baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant involves a covenant oath. As I discussed in chapter 2, the oath section of the covenant involves sanctions. The covenant holds forth a prospect of blessings for obedience to the terms of the covenant and threatens curses for disobedience. Although we are prone only to think of the glorious promises associated with baptism, there are negative sanctions involved in baptism as well. As a sign and seal of our redemption, baptism speaks of our salvation and the newness of life which salvation brings. Just as the old creation, the physical world, emerged from under the waters, Genesis 1, 1 through 10, 
So does the new creation, the redeemed world, salvation. In the pouring out of the waters of baptism upon the convert, we receive the sign of the coming of the Holy Spirit, who affects our union with the triune God, cleansing from sin and faith in Christ. Baptism then speaks of blessing and forgiveness. Yet baptism also strongly exhibits judgment. The first mention of baptism in the New Testament is under John Baptist's ministry. John baptizes with a view to repentance from sin and in anticipation of coming judgment. Later, Christ refers to his looming judgment, suffering, and death as a baptism. The writer of Hebrews also speaks of the various baptisms in the Old Testament. Baptisms performed with the blood of slain sacrificial animals, which clearly speak of judgmental death. Hebrews 9, 10, 13, 19, and 21. Christian baptism is itself tied to judgment. The Pentecostal call to baptism was given in the shadow of looming fiery judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem, Acts 2, 19-21, 40-41. Likewise, Peter relates baptism to life and death issues when he speaks of it in the context of Noah's flood, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. Thus, the escape from judgment that baptism relates is through the redemptive sufferings of Christ, as Paul made clear in Romans 6. There he specifically mentions the death aspect entailed in baptism, when he says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. In the final analysis, it may be said that baptism is an oath sign of an allegiance to Christ the Lord. And if the immediate function of baptism and covenant administration is to serve as the ritual of an oath of discipleship, we have in that another indication that baptism is a symbolic portrayal of the judgment of the covenant. For as we have seen, covenant oath rituals were enactments of the sanctions involved in the oath. As Gary North puts it, when there is an oath, there is also implicitly a curse. Without the presence of a curse, there can be no oath. Most Christians agree that baptism is the appropriate biblical sign to be applied to new converts to the faith. We see a number of examples in the New Testament of individuals receiving baptism upon their conversion under the influence of the Great Commission. We think of the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul, Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Crispus, and Gaius. But in that the Great Commission is a covenantal commission, baptism cannot be limited to an individualistic focus. Just as the Great Commission has a corporate influence, so does baptism itself. And this corporate design entails the baptism of the families of believers. In God's covenantal dealing with his people, there is what we may call the principle of family solidarity. We see this great principle at work in various examples in Scripture. For instance, although the Bible teaches that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6-8, his entire family was brought into the ark for protection due to God's gracious covenant. Likewise, God's covenant was established with Abraham, Genesis 12, 1-3, and with his seed, Genesis 17-7. God's gracious covenant was designed to run in family generations, just as were his fearsome covenant curses. Because of this, God graciously sanctifies, sets apart the offspring of the covenantal faithful. Even in the New Testament, God draws a distinction between the children of his people and the children of non-believers. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14 This explains why Christ lays his hands on infants of his followers, to bless them. When Paul writes to the saints, set apart ones, in a particular locality, he includes commands for the children who are numbered among the saints. In addition, we may note that New Testament blessings, like those of the Old Testament, are framed in terms inclusive of family generations, rather than in terms excluding family generations. The promise is to believers and their children. There is nothing in the New Testament that undermines and invalidates the Old Testament covenantal principle of family solidarity. And in fact, 
Everything confirms its continuing validity. Thus, a covenantal understanding of baptism leads inexorably to infant baptism. In order briefly to demonstrate this, let us first consider the Old Testament sign of the covenant, circumcision. Then we will show the elements of continuity between the Old Testament circumcision and the New Testament baptism. Clearly, circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament era, as is evident in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17:7, 10, and 11. And in fact, Stephen calls it the covenant of circumcision, Acts 7, 8, and circumcision represented deeply spiritual truths in Israel. 1. Circumcision represented union and communion with God. In Genesis 17, 10-11, circumcision is spoken of as the sign of God's covenant with his people. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For one not to be circumcised was to be in breach of the covenant, and would exclude the uncircumcised person from the people of God. And the uncircumcised male child, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Genesis 17.17 Israel was very personally and deeply in union and communion with God. She did not exist merely in a political relationship with him. In fact, the highest blessing of God's covenant with Abraham, which was sealed in circumcision, was, I will be your God, and you will be my people. 2. Circumcision symbolically represented the removal of the defilement of sin. Often in the Old Testament we hear of the call to circumcise the heart, i.e. from uncleanness. This deeply spiritual call shows the sacramental relation between the outward physical act of circumcision and the inward spiritual reality of cleansing from sin. 3. Circumcision sealed faith. In the New Testament, the apostle of faith clearly spoke of Old Testament circumcision's relationship to faith, the fundamental Christian virtue. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had. Romans 4.11 Circumcision is a sign and a seal of the righteousness that results from faith. And Abraham is the preeminent example of justification by faith for the apostles. In fact, elsewhere, Paul relates circumcision to the spiritual realities of salvation through faith. In the New Testament phase of the covenant, baptism becomes the sign of the covenant. Hence the Great Commission's enforcement of baptism upon the converts to the faith. Matthew 28:19. Of baptism, we may note that it represents the same spiritual truths as circumcision. 1. Union and communion with the Lord, cleansing from the defilement of sin, and faith. In fact, baptism specifically replaced circumcision, for it is written of Christians, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore it is not surprising that following the pattern set by Old Testament circumcision, baptism is mentioned in conjunction with the promise to families, Acts 2, 38 and 39, and that examples of whole family baptism are recorded. In Acts 16, 14 through 15, we read, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she constrained us. Notice the Lord is said to have opened Lydia's heart, yet she and her household were baptized. This is precisely parallel to the situation with circumcision in the Old Testament. Thus the covenantal principle of family solidarity continues from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Infant baptism, then, is justified on the following grounds, to name but a few. 1. Circumcision and baptism represent the same spiritual truths. 
Circumcision was applied to infants, so why not baptism? 2. Baptism is specifically said to replace circumcision, so why not for infants? 3. Redemptive promises are issued in such a way as to include believers and their seed, so why not baptize both? 4. The children of believers are said to be clean and holy, so why not apply the symbol of cleansing to them? 5. Household baptisms appear in the New Testament record, in some cases even though only the parent is said to have believed. 6. There is no record of the repeal of the inclusion of children in the covenant promises. The family represents the child's first experience with society, and that the family is the training ground for mature living in society. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, 12, chapter 5, verse 8. Baptism carries with it strong cultural implications. The Great Commission commands the baptizing of disciples to Jesus Christ. In the action of baptism, there is the establishing of a covenantal relation between God and the disciple and his seed. That covenantal relation promises reward and blessing for faithfulness to the terms of the covenant. It threatens wrath and curse for unfaithfulness. And those covenantal sanctions are applied to the smallest foundational society, the family. Too many Christians lightly regard baptism today, but its close attachment in the Great Commission to all authority in heaven and earth should lead the knowledgeable Christian to a high regard for baptism. Covenantal oaths are binding obligations, eternally binding. To whom much is given, much is required. Luke 12, 48. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.